0: This is Focal Point, the podcast where we discuss the artists, themes, and processes that define and sometimes disrupt the world of contemporary photography. I'm Kristen Taylor, curator of academic programs and collections at the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College Chicago, here with guests Eleanor Carucci and Laya Abril. Eleanor and Laya are both artists featured in the current MOCP exhibition called Reproductive Health Fertility Agency which is on view at the museum until May 23, 2021. Eleanor Carucci is a New York-based photographer who creates intimate documentations of her private life and home. Her first monograph, Closer, was published in 2002, which focuses on her immediate family, members, and marriage. Diary of a Dancer was published in 2005, documenting her experiences as a professional Middle Eastern dancer. Mother was published in 2013, showing her journey through pregnancy, labor, and many years of motherhood. It confronts viewers with candid depictions from her changing body to moments of annoyance, frustration, and exhaustion, but also those of great joy and tenderness. Her most recent monograph, Midlife, was published in 2019, which shows her experiences reaching the age of 50 and entering menopause. Eleanor's works are held in the collections of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and the Houston Museum of Fine Art, among many others. She teaches at the School of Visual Arts in New York, where she is joining us today from her home in Manhattan. Laya Abril is an artist who works with photography, text, installation, video, and sound to give voices to the stories experienced by women due to oppression that are often hidden from public discourse. Originally trained in journalism, Abril uses photography paired with extensive text components providing an in-depth view of the many consequences of restricting women's rights. Her long-term project, A History of Misogyny, is comprised of several chapters, on abortion, on rape, mass hysteria, menstruation myths, and femicides. She is the creator of many innovative photo books, including On Abortion and the Repercussions of Lack of Access, which was published in 2018 and was the winner of the Aperture Best Book Award. Today we are discussing a work they have each chosen from the museum's permanent collection, as well as their own work and practice.
1: I'm Laya Vril, I'm an artist from Barcelona, and I have chosen a piece of Marina Abramović. The name of the piece is Lips of Thomas. So I'm looking at the piece right now at the museum website, and you can find the artist, Marina Abramović. She's on her knees and and she's naked, and this is a part of a scene of her performance she was doing. Hi, my name is Elina Okoruchi. I chose a piece
2: by Jess Dugan, uh, Gloria, 70, Chicago from the body of work to survive on this shore. Um, And what you see is a beautiful woman, confident, even though it seems like winter, she's staying with a beautiful coat and smiling. She seemed happy and looking at the camera. And there is something that she projects that I find very positive and empowering.
0: Thank you. And I think it's interesting that you both chose pieces that have text components. So both of these pieces in our collection are actually. Somewhat diptychs. So, with Jess Dugan's piece, we have a text panel that goes with it. That's an interview that Jess conducted with her partner, Vanessa Fabre, where they're interviewing each person that they're photographing and This is exhibited with the piece. And then Laya, Your Choice by Marina Abramovich also has a text panel, but the text panel is describing the performance. Um, It's a list of actions. It starts with, I slowly eat one kilo of honey with a silver spoon. I slowly drink one liter of red wine out of a crystal glass. And it continues into um, really sort of more dramatic actions with her body. Um, Can you both maybe talk about if the text component is very important to you as you read these pieces? Or is it just pure coincidence that you both chose pieces with these prominent text pieces?
1: I, I don't think it's a coincidence. Like uh, for me, text has always been a very important component of every artist's story that I came across even if it's only a statement and in the case of this particular piece I I don't really understand the text as as that for me it's like a recipe no, of what she did and and the steps that took her To that image. The first time that I actually saw this image and read this text was through her bio. Um, I was reading the biography actually during the first lockdown here in Barcelona and by finding it again in your your collection and coming across to it, it was not precise. I, I already knew the story behind, I remember parts of the performance, but suddenly by only looking at the image first, Uh, isolated from the story, the biography, or the performance itself at that time, it had a different impression
0: on me. And and I would like to discuss that today with, with you both. And Eleanor, do you have thoughts about the text component of Jess's piece? It's hard
2: for me to know if it was important or not because I immediately knew it was Jess's work and that there is a lot of written material always in her work. And, and that's what I love, that I was immediately drawn to the image. And then I, I read, and I read more, and I talked about it with my daughter. And there are layers and layers and layers that, that you can go to. But the image is the important thing for me. The image is what made me read the text. So I give priority to the image,
0: <laughs> the way that I connect to art. You both are part of an exhibition that we have up right now at the museum that's up until May 23rd of 2021. And the exhibition is centered on reproductive health agency, um, reproductive rights. So your work is is very different. Laya, yours has a lot of text with it. like You have images about abortion and stories of people who have experienced abortion or also going into the history of contraception and DIY methods of abortion, going into some of the politics of access to abortion. And then Eleanor, your Um, work is very, very personal. It's a continuation of the work that you do that is very personal about your own body and your own kind of lived experiences and your very private life. And the series that we have up is about you entering into menopause and sort of grappling with um, the end of your fertility as you go through a hysterectomy, but then also a continuation of your sexuality and your intimacy and your relationship with your husband. All of that is just to give a little bit more of the foundation uh, for this question. Have you both met each other before? Are you, have you worked (laughs) together ever before? Is this the first time we're meeting?
2: It's the first time we're meeting. I mean, of course I know Laya, and we will collaborate later this year again. Um, But we never met. We never met. We're both, uh, we both lived in America. I still live in America. I've been here for many years um and I do think that living in another place makes the way you see as a photographer and think as an artist you get more sensitivities uh, to other people so I was just wondering about this but we we never we never met a lot of questions reliable <laughs> <laughs> we
1: actually we actually share an agency many years ago and at that time there were not that many women working in these kind of issues at least in in that agency. And, even though it was one of the the, the ones that actually had some people. Um, but I remember always having the references of your images in kind of like the back of my head, like also by sharing that kind of virtual space that was that website, because it was not really a, a community or a cooperative in that sense. And I, the projects that I do are deeply connected to myself, but because I come from journalism, uh, originally journalism, it's been a journey to detach myself to this idea that I'm not the most important part of the story, no? because I come from this more documentary tradition. And, and one, re- one reason why i have been reading about Marina Abramovic and, and, and looking back at some work like yours and Abigail Heyman is like this kind of living always in this limbo where I'm not really um, belong to anywhere because I'm always outsider in some kind of reason um, right. your, your body becomes your home and, and our relationship with our bodies it's, it's, it's complicated no matter how not complicated it is because you know we are women in this world right now right. and I found really interesting to now that I'm older to look back to your work and other women's work from this new perspective and understanding that biography and time, it's also very important in the way we analyze this images. Right.
0: So, Laya, you said you were interested in this piece by Marina Abramovich also to talk a little bit about performance and Eleanor's work and I understand you have some questions for Eleanor about the performative aspect of her work. Yeah. I have one image in
1: my mind I mean I'm, I'm sorry I I'm, I should know the probably the context behind of the image but it actually is not it's good that I don't because then I can ask you and I was at the beginning I thought I, I had to choose a picture from you in the catalog. And I found one, and it's that that one that you are pregnant and and you are showing the pregnancy to your parents. I was wondering how how that image was uh, created.
2: Yeah, I mean, the performance element is a big element in in my work. And um, I did study acting when I was younger, theater and drama. Um, And I feel that I perform in my work, definitely. And I'm, you know, I'm the director and the performer and it's creating kind of what I call the first photographic stage and um, other people perform as well because we are all aware of the camera Um, and many times people ask me about this performance element sometimes in a negative way because sometimes they feel they doubt the authenticity or the honesty of the work and um yes it can bring fakeness sometimes or because we're performing but you're performing something that is more honest you're saying even more as you perform you're going back to a moment and alter it somehow so the performance brings another element but i always wonder how much of starting acting and i was a professional belly dancer for for 12 years how much it it you know affect my work it's 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 there definitely and uh, this was a moment when i remember you know staging everything telling my parents i'm going to work here and then and then something happens we're there i'm leaving the camera with the self timer and i'm there performing my pregnancy to my parents so yes it's a big element
0: something i'm i'm wondering about your work eleanor is how long you take setting up your um, your photographs your images because they, they do seem very like staged, but also very natural. Like you're, especially the one where you're at the table with your husband paying bills or these kinds of like everyday moments that seem a little bit maybe quicker and on the moment. And then there's others with your mother and your daughter and you, and it's very like beautifully posed. And it, and I imagine that you probably take a lot of work with the lighting and everything to set that up. Um, how do you sort of negotiate that when you're making your work, even back to when you were documenting yourself dancing, like do you spend a lot of time crafting those images or is it more spontaneous?
2: I just spend a lot of time preparing the lights, especially the before um, and, and sometimes cleaning up and moving things around. Um, and, and if I work with myself, I can take my time and try and, try and get with my husband. But then when I photograph other people, um, my children now that they're teenagers, God, I have I sometimes have like eight seconds <laughs> plan and and then then they're like really it's really, really quick. And the same with my mom. Sometimes I want to photograph something, then they get upset at me. So I, I actually photograph them being upset at me for taking their pictures and annoying them with my bodies of work. And it can be very quick if they give me more time. I will take more time, but it's not only up to me. Mm -hmm. Or even with the image of my uterus, you know, that was taken right after the hysterectomy, the the hospital didn't give me much time. (laughs) So I had to photograph my own uterus before they take it away, something that was in my body Mm -hmm. uh, for the 40-something years that it was. Um, And I had to be very quick.
0: Yeah. I'm amazed that you captured that photograph. I just remember after giving birth, wanting to see the placenta and having to be like, wait, wait, don't take it away. I want to see what this looks like. It's just this um, once in a lifetime opportunity to see the organ in your body out on in the open. So, um, yeah. But I asked that question too, because I'm curious about the uh, going back to the Jess Dugan piece that you chose. I don't know if you were thinking about it in relationship to Leia's work, but I find it interesting because that piece is sort of a, a mixture, I think, of your two styles like it's it's beautifully crafted and staged and this really striking portrait um but then with the text component it also is very research based i'm thinking about your work laya too that you you spend so much time researching i would imagine how much time do you spend making versus researching like do you feel like it's fairly even or is there one that takes a lot more dominance no research
1: become the methodology and, and and the making is the research right now. It's interesting we're talking about this text component because when I explain the show of on abortion, I, I explain that for me, the text comes first and then I take the pictures. And uh, While when you are in the show as an audience, you first see the picture and then that triggers you to read. And it's very interesting, this kind of uh, read, you know, this kind of opposition um, chronology of how to, consume that, that kind of content right now talking about an abortion and obviously having the show there in Chicago is as important as producing the work because especially with this kind of political work um, what is really hard is also having a place so we can have a conversation around it so I actually see the process of creating a, in a very organic way and and I I've never, I have never been that kind of romantic photographer who got the camera when was a child. I actually did. But for me, it always was a tool and, and writing was my first tool and I was not really good at it. So I sent to photography. I was not really good at it either. And at the end, I understood that I was trying to fight the, the tools instead to embrace them and, and understand that research actually was my primary tool.
0: Well, it's a beautiful combination and you don't give yourself enough credit because the images are very, very striking. And I think that would be such a hard thing to do to make a photograph of a historical method of contraception beautiful. But like you have a lot of great choices with the color and paper and size and the way that you print them and the way that you weave all of these kind of artifacts and stories together to to create this really meaningful experience. So one question I have for both of you too, because another connection I see between your work is that I think people label you as like bold or fearless or, you know, uh, woman artists, you know, like how do you feel about the, the categorizations or, or descriptions that people put onto your work? Um, especially for you, Eleanor, too, where I think a lot of people label your work as being very bold, but does it need to be labeled bold like is it that radical to show female sexuality what are your thoughts on these categories
2: i think it's bold to decide to be an artist then the work itself um just to begin with yes i'm bold and brave as jess and marina and Laya and 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 so many artists especially women um because we get less opportunity um than men still uh for me, the work itself, it's sometimes even the opposite of bold. I sometimes see it as selfish. I feel these are my needs. I need to photograph my flaws and my difficulties and my challenges and the things that I'm, you know, fighting with or sometimes suffer from and my joys. And I have to put them in the world. This is, this is how I, I can somehow comfort myself. I get so much of it that i can't I can't see it as bold. if anything I sometimes see it as liberating you know um it's very difficult for me to have to hold a facade or to keep a secret or to pretend as if nothing happens and in order to make my life more easy or happy or tolerable sometimes, I put those images out there um and 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 it's so it's so liberating so if anything I see it as liberating and I feel lucky that I have somewhere to put those images to and that people respond and that sometimes this is something that is helpful to other people especially in my work in the more recent years about middle age but I, I see the boldness in the existence of a woman as an artist this is this requires a lot of strength and courage
1: it's, it's really interesting what you say, because I often struggle with people living, living in my work or myself as an activist. And again, because coming from journalism, that would be the opposite of what I do, because I also feel selfish at the end of the day. I don't think it's actually activism, because as you say, I, in a way, I'm doing it for me. Like, I want to understand how the world works. And I, am, uh, and I am in pain and, and understanding why these things happen. It's what it's helping me. And obviously I share it with more people, but it was very interesting what you say at the beginning, because obviously being a female artist, uh, it has many difficulties added to the situation. I always have this conversation with Susan Meizelas, the, the photographer, every time we cross paths, which is quite often lately, I ask her to tell me the name of a photographer, a female photographer who was her age and had children and was successful till that age and we haven't found anyone yet and i'm just rooting for you to be that one <laughs> because we mean, there is no reference i mean there's so maybe true. there's one and and i think the husband was uh, very rich which right. is great but obviously that's not my case um, because I find myself myself as a as a woman and as a, and as a female artist at thirty five years old having to make a choice. And having no references of that kind of possibility, it's really heartbreaking and 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 I remember my father always saying, then you have to become the reference. <laughs> but, you know, uh, yeah and 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 I love and I love as I said, going back to the work and understanding. Your grow, your work, your work uh, growing up, and 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 seeing that there is a possibility because it's not always going to be the same needs, and and and, and I think that's also the beauty of our work, no? That it's actually organic and is always changing. Right, right.
2: This is something I thought about so much, and I still think about, um, with a lot of pain. There are no, no, you know, solutions or answers, and um, if if the sacrifice would be that we can't raise children while being artist, also the financial aspect of it. It's, it's too much to ask. So
1: I will, I will, I will find you some, some examples. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> Marina Abramovic in her bio, she talks about her three abortions. And, and, and she's really straightforward with why she didn't have children. And it's because she wanted to have a successful career. And obviously, you know, um, she's not the only case or the only one. That's why being very transparent and vulnerable in this kind of situation, like this podcast, I think it's actually really helpful for many people as myself. <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 Yes, absolutely. That's that's really, really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and so some the, it sort of leads into a question that I have also for both of you about grief, because Eleanor, you're photographing a lot. Through the pandemic, I've seen it published um, kind of more editorially of you in New York experiencing um, being detached from your city that you love and, and shut indoors with your family, which is interesting because your work has always been about celebrating your home and your family. But in the pandemic, we're forced to. So it all kind of shifts your perspective on it. So I wanted to know what you thought about trying to photograph grief and loss and this time we're in. Um, And then Leia, for you too, that's something that grief has been just a part of your work, like even before you did this project that's on view right now at the museum, you did a big project about eating disorders um, and a a project about someone who died of bulimia and grief just kind of consuming the family. So I know it's something that you think about a lot in your work, even if it's not related to this current moment. How do you all work through those feelings of grief in your work and, and process it and- is the art helpful in processing those feelings, Laya? Who is starting? <laughs> you
2: either one. <laughs> a heavy one here. A heavy one, Laya. Laya. Um. Okay. No, do you? No, you can start, and I will.
1: I will think meanwhile. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, if I'm actually very honest, like if I, there is a community denominator in my work it's probably grief <laughs> like if i think of, i mean there are many but um it's always been very present and and reconstructing the grieving process of of the family of Cami, who died after, uh, after having bulimia was a very important project for for me as a person and as an artist as well i documented the what they call the ambiguous grieving which is when people got miss uh, missing and, and you cannot actually grieve the person because you don't really actually psychologically speaking, if you don't see the body, you can't actually go through the grieving process. And I'm I'm also, I'm again, getting very personal. I'm sorry. (laughs) Also, the questions are, and I went through grief during the lockdown because one of my best friends suddenly died uh, during the lockdown here in Barcelona. And our lockdown was really tough. The first one, we couldn't leave the house for 90 days at all. And it was really intense because I was, I live alone and my friend had an eating disorder. I had an eating disorder. It was really interesting to mm. photograph um, the process of remembering her and, and and the body issues that I was experiencing because obviously when you are in a lockdown, it's also complicated in that sense. And I started taking pictures with Polaroid, like of my personal grief, grieving process, which I've never done before because I don't really photograph um, my life. And it was really strange because I... have I don't know, I mean, I don't even know if I will ever share those images, but in a way I did experience that kind of, I wouldn't say cathartic because I, I, I don't think I got to that point, but I needed to make some sense of it. And, and art becoming the thing that helps me to understand the world, it suddenly helped me to understand myself as well. I, I Not that I want to now photograph my life like my body, new body of work, but I would like to be a little bit more honest with uh, the proximity of my work and myself.
2: I think, I think grief and loss, I always say it, uh, is the reason we photograph. I mean, we all photograph, not only people like Laya and me, and everybody, um, because everything we photograph, we will lose. I'm sorry to be a little dark here, Um, so without the fear of loss and without knowing that I will grieve things and as as my kids they're now 16 I'm already grieving the the loss of their childhood and the fact that maybe I will never snuggle with them naked again so it's so connected to even my happy images not only the obvious one of Losing my younger body, losing my fertility, losing my uterus, photographing my grandparents and looking at the the images, even even the happy pictures. Uh, The happiness, this moment, as soon as I took it, became a past, became something I lost, something I will, I'm either grieving on now or I will. So it's so connected to the work itself and to the motivation to make work that I sometimes am afraid to talk about it, because it sounds, you know, really dark, but
0: um, it's always there
2: in every image.
0: Yeah, it's, it's something that I didn't think about a connection point of your work until I was really thinking about this interview, and then it just dawned on me that you both are doing very similar things in, in completely different ways and telling different stories, but Um, it is very healing I think for people to be able to experience your work and to connect in a way where this whole exhibition is based on um, that most women don't have images to connect to through these experiences and and grief is a part that of course is beyond any gender or beyond like you know our reproductive rights and everything everyone experiences grief but um, especially in ways that are connected to the body and like what you're talking about Marina Abramovich or even Jess Dugan's work about the body and gender. It's like, it's just so um, important to have images to connect to. So I'm very grateful for both of your projects and your work and your careers as artists and doing this bold and brave work let we talk about that <laughs> word again. Um, so Eleanor, you said also that you were interested in talking with Laya about um, reproductive rights in Israel, where you're from. Um, do you wanna share sort of your thoughts on that and what you would hope to talk about? Yeah. I mean. It is a
2: problem, but the the state of Israel is very much connected to Judaism. Um, And uh, even some, like, you can't get married in a civil ceremony. Even if you get married outside of Israel and you you live in Israel and you want a divorce, it will have to go through the rabbinut, the religious institute. And so having an abortion is deeply related to Judaism, Um, and this is something I grew up with, there were committees, and um, it's always connected in my head to to religion, to Judaism, uh, while uh, having women total control over her body is for me connected to being secular. And I'm not even sure what I am, I'm Jewish, and and I I you know I while I do have some spiritual beliefs I am not religious so I wanted to ask about this connection also to religion and I know that mm-hmm. other than Judaism um, um, Christianity. Mm-hmm.
1: What is interesting about the specific case of Israel is that it's a very good example than how most of these are started and it's like abortion as rep- reproductive rights are. Um, a matter of control of population. And often um, because the governments didn't want to get their hands dirty, they would ask the church to be the ones uh, by having a speech into moral and ethics to help them to get their goal, which is, you know, to. Having the population increasing and and they prevail or, or their their the kingdom or or the society and obviously in Israel who suffers from this fear by obvious reasons um, it doesn't surprise me because it's actually a very straightforward example of something that also happened in the Romania in in Europe and and how they had this thing that I found is in the book is fascinating they call it the menstruation police. And basically, they would go to the uh, factories to control when women were having their periods and that they were getting pregnant as often as they could, because the whole obsession of the of of the detector was to increase the population to I don't remember how many millions. So obviously, one thing is the, the institutional institution, the religious institution. And another thing is the people. And I have a big respect for people's beliefs because that's a, you know, a part that I don't want to miss with. My only problem with that is, for instance, in Italy and Spain, where the law is quite good, there is such a high uh, objectives of conscience that people are actually dying because no one wants to help them to, to provide abortions. And even though in, in cases where it's actually you need it, otherwise you would die, women end up dying because of not having access to healthcare. Uh, which is actually what we're talking here and what I talk about the book as well. So my obsession is to at least have that in consideration and making people understand that what they vote, it has an implication in other people's lives. In the first chapter with an abortion, I decided to approach it in a very subtle way, in a very... um, Conversational way, <laughs> and and I remember, I don't know you have seen the in the catalogue we publish a picture of a nun in Slovenia I've seen my show and I always end up all the talks by showing that image. Um, the fact that she was comfortable being in the show and reading the stories was already um, a success for me because that was my my whole intention. If I start criticizing the church and screaming and getting super upset which is completely fine and i'm and i'm happy for the artists who do that Uh, but i would not find that kind of situation that i was looking to to have it and it's it's the hardest part of the subject to talk and especially obviously in u.s not not even only in israel i mean everywhere but especially in u.s and that's why i'm really glad we we got the show there Right.
2: Because especially here, because here it's officially not connected, uh, the, the governing institute and in religions, but they so are. And I remember even when Bernie Sanders last time, five years ago, uh, ran for presidency and he said uh, that he is Jewish, but he's not religious. It was it was changed after a while uh, because people still can't elect a president if they think that they're not um, religious, which is really interesting to me. So it's it's connected in a way that is less official, but the connection is strong.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's such an interesting time to have this work up, this exhibition up, because it it opened right as we got a new president and the old president left. And the old president, I don't even want to mention his name. <laughs> I'm so sick of his name, but- yeah, <laughs> he makes an appearance in your installation too, Leia, as part of a, a video piece that you have where um, these various kind of politicians are talking about uh, women's rights and, and why they should not need abortions, basically. And our former president saying like, oh, women don't even die from pregnancy anymore. It's not a problem. He's and- saying
1: they should be punished
0: right right so (laughs) thank you for that question i feel like is there there's someone else who says that right about how yeah it's
1: a another politician from chile
0: right and you have it in this way where it's on an old-fashioned television set that you sit down and watch like you're watching a tv from the 50s but and it's black and white but it's obviously more uh contemporary current imagery because we recognize people in it um can you talk about your choices for creating that film and and yeah, your thoughts
1: on it. Yeah, like at the end of the day, I, I might become a kind of an expert in the subject afterwards. And I only allow myself to say that because people who are actually um, experts told me. So I think I can say it now. But when I first started the research, I don't really know much about the subject. I might know from a, as, a, as a regular person. no, And, and I, don't re- I didn't really know much about abortion laws. Until actually my own law in Spain was uh, in danger because they wanted to make it more restrictive. And you realize how you know you're young and you were born was already there and you don't really pay attention to it. but it's really something you have to care for it because tomorrow could be you and it could be you wherever you are. and the, the the TV was one of the first pieces that I did because I found really interesting how these figures of, of authority, we're talking about abortion and access to abortion, especially in Argentina, in Chile, where the restriction is really hard. And they were talking about really extreme cases as being rape or malformations in the fetus or, or, or with your life in danger. And it was so absurd, the fact that those speeches were from 2015, 2014. Actually, Trump was in pre-campaign in 2015 when I took that interview where he's mentioning that women should be punished for abortion. And I remember when he got elected, uh, I woke up in the morning because I was in Barcelona and and I start crying because people don't really understand the impact of that in the rest of the world. And and that kind of understanding of the world and, and how things are connected, it gives you also a very particular way, interesting way of being compassive with everybody's points of view, but at the end of the day also gives you an urgency of, you know, like, it's not only about you and and, and what do you believe and your feelings. You, we need to understand we are not alone here. And I thought that peace could, was interesting to, to especially for this kind of um, dissociation about time and, and feeling that was something from the fifties, which is the whole history of misogyny point, um, could help for people to understand who were not really into the subject, which is kind of
0: my target. I love that you just brought up time because as we're running out of time for this interview, I was thinking about time a lot with both of your work because since this show has been mounted, there's been changes with like Biden taking away the gag law, for example, like or the gag rule. Um, so as things change and progress with politics, hopefully progress, do you revisit the work? Do you, do you close it at a certain point? since time is also such a big part of your work and things are always kind of changing in your life, how do you negotiate like moving between series and when it's time to to kind of book in something and start something new? Yes, it's very
2: confusing because I published Midlife and then I had some hot flash and I'm like, oh my God, what? I'm like, I'm still having material for the midlife and I'm still having some midlife crisis because it's not, you know, as opposed to some things in your life, like when I gave birth, I became a mother. It's very definite. Other things, even when I did, and I did a lot of research on midlife and midlife crisis for men and women in different cultures, it really is a flexible time period because there are many different factors that can change it. So the body of work is finished but um if there will ever be a second edition i was already thinking i have some more images about midlife i was thinking (laughs) Um, and and you know thinking when because i'm photographing my kids now for their teens when will it end when they go to college or the last day they're 19 and when will my old age body of work start when i'm 60 when i'm 70 when i'm 80 I don't know, and part of deciding, making those decisions becomes the statement of of the work itself. Um, When I call myself an old woman and make a body of work about it, is a statement by itself, but I don't have the answer yet. How
1: how often do you photograph?
2: I try to photograph weekly, um, but sometimes I get lazy, and it doesn't happen. And then, especially because I teach and I tell my students photograph every day, and then like, oh my god, I have to photograph, and then I force myself to photograph again. So I photograph, I would say weekly, sometimes daily, but sometimes there will be bad two months, two weeks, sorry, when I'm not taking pictures, and that's lazy.
1: <laughs> that's lazy. <laughs> Love. It. And and do you also write like a like a diary or, or not, well? Really? not a diary,
2: but I will write notes about the work. And mainly I write those notes because I'm not a good writer and I dread the day when I will have to have the essay for the work. So it's only because of fear. I'm like, I have to collect material and I have like a document in my phone that I keep writing ideas. And and it's just because I know that one day when I'm photographing my kids now, or I photograph a body of work about immigration, I will have to have the text and it's there, and that's what makes me make me write because I, unlike you like you're a writer then um, and, and this is not this is something that is very like challenging for me so I make sure to write so it's not impossible when I have to write the essay. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm, I'm, i I kind of boycott myself because I write in English directly, which is obviously not my mother tongue, so it's actually very difficult for me to write and 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 I think that's also interesting because when something is difficult for you, you do it more focused in a way and and I also you I don't think that much around I try because English compared to spanish it's it's really straightforward while when you, I think in Spanish is a very long dissertation. So I, I like to also this kind of out of comfort zone situations become your methodology, no, and and it's very much related to the emotion that the pro, the, the projects um, provoke me, no, like if it's anger, like uh, frustration, like with on rape, the second chapter, it was so overwhelming and so um, I was so upset for three years that uh, it also I I arrived to a point that I said I don't want to be in that stage. Continuously uh, for the next one, so you are ed- editing your life, and I am, okay. <laughs> I am, infusing it of weird stuff. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's fascinating to hear about. It. I, I want to know more.
2: <laughs> want to know more also about the English? I, I mean, don't you feel sometimes that your English speaking or English writing, Laya, is a little bit different in in personality than the Spanish?
1: Speaking. Absolutely. I'm much more smart in Spanish.
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> this is really difficult. This is really difficult. In no, fact, no, it's very difficult. feel like you're more funny in your in your mother <laughs> tongue than it's
1: No, I I I think in English when i do work. I, I got used to it and, and yes. it's what I say like I go more straight to the point and 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 it's very interesting like when I have to do talks in the Spanish or Catalan. It's really complicated. I don't have to do it anymore. So, yeah, it's kind of like the, yeah, it's like a tool, no? Like that you also never thought about it. Instead of looking at it as a struggle, it's actually have some silver (laughs) linings. Like the
0: pandemic. I love it. I think that's a great place to end. Hopefully, it inspires some people to be be more outgoing with their work and their books and their projects because you both are such inspirations. Um, Thank you so much for your participation in the exhibition as well as with this interview. It's been really great speaking with you. Thank you, you, Kristen. It's an an honor to be here. Thank you for listening to Focal Point. Focal Point is presented by the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College Chicago in partnership with WCRX-FM. Special thanks to Matt Cunningham, Wesley Reno, and Matthew Byrne. Music is by Xabi. To see the images we discussed today, please visit mocp.org backslash focal point. You can also follow the Museum of Contemporary Photography on Facebook and Instagram at mocpshi, that's M-O-C-P-C-H-I, and on Twitter at mocp underscore Chicago. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Focal Point anywhere you get your podcasts.